Thank you, Emily. Uh, so we are in week five of our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, which is a biography of Jesus written by one of his earliest followers. And so over the past couple of weeks, uh, really the, the past four weeks as we started this journey through Matthew, we've answered some of the most important questions that you could ever ask. So we've asked questions like, what's the point of it all? Where is this whole thing headed? Who is Jesus? Who are you? What is the good news of Jesus? And so uh, what I want us to, to do tonight to start is I just want to give you the opportunity to discuss uh, another really important question. So here's our question for tonight. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? So get into uh, groups of two or three, like we've done, with somebody around you. Make sure everybody's included. Introduce yourselves if you don't know each other. uh, And uh, give your honest answer to that question. What does it mean to be a Christian? I'll bring us back together here in just a second. Um, You'll see the significance of that question here in just a second. Some of you know that in a former life, I played football in college. So, yeah, you can tell... Uh, the shock on people's faces is always fun to see whenever I, whenever I tell them that. So thank you for that. Um, but I promise, saying that I played football in college uh, is not a flex because uh, it was a small school and I'm using the term played very loosely. Okay, so just know that. My football career, uh, it, it, um, Matt told me to really embellish this story. So I was getting, I was getting ready for, uh, for the draft. I was on the verge of getting ready for the draft and my career was cut short uh, by an injury that happened. Uh, and so uh, it, it happened in a really big game that in the college that I played at. They took me to the hospital. They did some x-rays. And they told me that my ankle was, uh, was broken and dislocated. So I went into surgery. They reset my ankle. They put it back into proper alignment so that I could heal and walk normally again. So as I, I was just thinking about that in relation to what we're going to do during our time together today, I wonder if if we don't need to do something similar when it comes to our answer to the question that you just discussed a minute ago. In terms of what does it mean to to be a Christian, uh, to to reset and to realign our definition of what it means to to be the people of Jesus so that we can heal from some of the broken ways that that question has been answered in the past and to be able to walk uh, into what Jesus has called us to again. So I don't know if you realize it or not, but there's a massive amount of confusion to the question that we just asked. Like there's a lot of confusion, first and foremost, in the world. So there was a huge study done a few years ago by an organization called Gray Matter Research, where they were trying to gauge uh, the way that people outside the church thought about people inside the church. And specifically, they asked them to describe uh, what they thought about evangelical Christians. And so here was some of the words that came up in response. We can bring those up on the screen. Illiterate, greedy, psychos, racist, stupid, narrow-minded, bigots, idiots, fanatics, nutcases, delusional, simpletons, pompous, cruel, and they concluded by saying that's just a partial list. So the way that people outside of the church, at least the people who are a part of this study, viewed people inside the church is with the words that you just saw a second ago. And some of you are thinking that's not fair, and in a lot of ways, uh, and in a lot of situations, That's probably right. There's some generalizations that are obviously being made there. But my guess is probably that all of us have had some interaction at some point with somebody who claimed to be a Christian who fell into one of those categories. Maybe even as we talk about that, like you can think of somebody who fit into one of those categories that we were just talking about who claimed to be a Christian. But regardless of if that's the case or not, it at least shows you 
that there's some confusion in the world about what it means to be the people of Jesus. And I wonder how much of that is due, at least in part, to the fact that there's confusion in the church about what it means to be a Christian. So just think about the discussion that you had with each other just a minute ago. What were some of the answers you heard? I'm not asking you to, to say them out loud or to rat somebody out who uh, gave an answer that you didn't agree with or something like that. Uh, but what were some of the answers you heard? Maybe, maybe you heard uh, that being a Christian meant believing a certain thing or uh, attending a certain event or living with some certain code of ethics that we think is what fits uh, within what it means to be a, a Christian. But regardless, the point is not even whether the answers that you gave are right or wrong. It's not even whether those things are right or wrong. The point is that there were probably as many different answers to that question as there were people in the room. Maybe you came to a certain point of agreement uh, by the time your one-minute discussion was done, but for a lot of us, there were probably about as many answers to that question as there were people who were here in the room today. And that's one of the main reasons that we're going through the Gospel of Matthew together, so that we can reset and realign our definition of what it means to be a Christian with what Jesus says is his vision for his people, right? To come back into alignment with Jesus, to come back to the, to the original source, so to speak, and to see what Jesus says it actually means to be his people so that what's been broken can be healed and we can walk in the way that he's called us to walk again, Right? But before we talk about Jesus' vision, we heard it read just a minute ago, but before we talk about that, we need to remember what Jesus said in our text from last week. Justin talked about this because Jesus' vision that he's going to lay out for us in the verses that Emily just read a minute ago only makes sense in light of what he's already said. So uh, Matthew gives us a one-sentence summary if you want to look at it in Matthew 4.17. says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So let's just start with a, a real quick recap of what that means. We don't talk about kingdoms very often, right? Unless you watch The Crown. For some of you, some, some of you get it, right? But, but let's start with the basics. A kingdom has a king and it has a people that the king reigns or rules over, right? Very basic stuff. So when we're trying to understand Jesus's primary message, the message of the kingdom, we have to remember that his definition of the kingdom of God and what it means to live in the kingdom of God is, is informed by the story of the Old Testament, right? Here's a brief rundown. The story starts with God. This is Genesis chapter 1. The story starts with God, who's the king, creating the world. That it's his kingdom, right? And he, he creates humanity, which is a people being given the responsibility to steward his creation. So humanity, some of you may know the story, humanity rebels against the, the rule and reign of God and tries to set up their own kingdom. And that leads to what the Bible calls the kingdoms of this world. By, by choosing to try to build our own kingdom instead of joining with God and building his, the, the story that the Bible would tell is that we've released hell on earth. Now, all you have to do really to, to figure that out is to look at some of the things that are happening in the world around us. Watch the news for a little bit and see the hell on earth that happens when we try to build our own kingdom instead of building the kingdom of God and joining him in what he's doing. Right? But throughout the entire story of the Old Testament, there's this, this thread of hope that's woven throughout the entire thing that eventually God is going to come back. He's going to come to his people. He's going to reclaim and rescue the world that, that has rejected him. And he's going to form a people who are going to learn to live under his gracious rule. 
right? That's the story that the Bible is telling. And it's into that situation that Jesus comes onto the scene in Matthew 4, 17 and says, the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is entering into that story of the people of God. So in other words, when Jesus makes that statement, the kingdom of God is here, he's saying that he is the king who's reclaiming the world, bringing heaven down into the hell on earth that we've created, rescuing and forming a people for his own possession who will live under his gracious rule. That message... That, that message is the good news, according to the Gospels. It's the, the good news or the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. And what he says to do in response to that good news is to repent, right? So you might hear that word, depending on what your, um, what your background in church is, you might hear that word and you, you might think about feeling sorry for sin or a sense of, of guilt that needs to be confessed to God. And there's, there's some truth to that. Those two things sometimes go hand in hand. But Jesus actually has in mind something a lot bigger than that. To repent is to to turn from our false views of the world and to embrace the reality of Jesus as king. I love the way that uh, an author named Dallas Willard paraphrases what Jesus says here. He says, the rule of God is now accessible to everyone. The kingdom of God is accessible, an open invitation to everyone. So review your plans for living and base your life on this remarkable new opportunity. So review your, your plan for your life, review, review your schedule, review your calendar, and base your life now on this new opportunity, this reality that God is bringing his kingdom into the world, that Jesus is the king who is here. So after making a statement like that, you might expect Jesus to, uh, to walk into Jerusalem, to kind of cozy up to the rich and powerful to use whatever means necessary, maybe even like force or violence to establish his kingdom on earth. But instead, Jesus, you heard it just a minute ago, does something uh, that could be described as just being really Jesus-y, right? He takes a walk beside the lake and he invites some guys to follow him. If you remember the message of the kingdom, what Jesus does here actually makes a lot of sense because what Jesus is doing, King Jesus, what he's doing is starting to form a people, right, who are going to learn to live under his rule. So look at Matthew 4 again, starting in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. He walks up like he owns the place and he gives them this three-part invitation, which is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately these four men that Jesus invites into, into that type of new life, they drop literally their livelihood, right? And they follow him. It says, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They're in the boat with their father, not just the two of them, but now families getting involved in this, right? Mending their nets, and he calls them, which is a uh, a shorthand way of saying that he gave them the same invitation that he gave the two guys earlier, right? Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. But look what happens this time. Immediately, they left the boat, so, so probably their most expensive possession, and also representative of the family business that they're a part of, right? And their father, and they followed him. So what, what's happening here in this call of these, uh, these, these four men? What's happening is that these four men are living pictures for us of what it means to repent and live life in the kingdom of God, right? 
This is Jesus giving them and he's giving us his vision for what it means to live life in his kingdom. And what he's showing you is that life in his kingdom means discipleship. Life in his kingdom means discipleship. It means to be his disciple. So that that word, when you hear that word disciple, it actually isn't used in the five verses that we just read just a second ago. But in inviting these men to follow him, it would have been understood that that's what Jesus was inviting them into, right? A, A discipleship relationship. And that word discipleship or the word disciple, depending on how you use it, it comes with all kinds of preconceived ideas. If you have any history with the church, when you hear that word discipleship or when you hear the word word disciple, you probably think about getting together with someone or getting together with a group of people in a coffee shop uh, to study the Bible, right? And that's that's a beautiful thing. Or when you hear the word disciple, you probably hear it naturally. Maybe this is another way to say it. When you hear the word disciple, you hear it naturally as a verb, right? I'm going to disciple you, or I would love it if you would disciple me. And that's okay. I'm not saying it's bad to use it that way. However, we do need to know if we're going to realign with Jesus's vision, like we're talking about, we need to understand that every single time Jesus and the New Testament authors use the word disciple, which is 268 times, by the way, Every time they use the word disciple, they use it as a noun and not as a verb. Okay, so so here's what that means. We could say it another way. Disciple is first and foremost something you are, not something you do. So it's really similar to the idea of of apprenticeship. Maybe that's a familiar idea for you. Uh, Maybe it's not. Maybe some of you have either done an apprenticeship or you know somebody who's done something similar to that. But it starts with you wanting to to get good at some particular trade, right? So uh, you you can think of any number of examples of this. Like you want to get good at a certain trade and you find somebody who's a master of that trade and you start to, to... spend time with them regularly. You start to imitate the things that they're doing. And eventually you get to the point where you don't just know the things that the master knows, but you're actually able to do the things that the master does. All right. So some of you, uh, some of you know, Matt, he's in the back, uh, doing some, some sound right now. Uh, he's our college director, but what you may not know about Matt is that he also moonlights as a music producer. Okay, so this is a very, very important piece of information about Matt that I want you to go and ask him about later. Uh, ask him if he has any demos that he'll let you, uh, let you listen to, okay? He's actually really good at it. If you go to, to his apartment, you'll see a mixing board, see some headphones, right? It's great. But apprenticeship for Matt, let's use Matt as our example. Apprenticeship for Matt would look like finding somebody who's a master of music production, right? Going to that person and saying, hey, I would love to spend time with you. I would love to watch you do what you do. And the goal for Matt in that would be eventually to get to the point, not just of knowing about music production, but of being able to produce music. You understand, you understand kind of the similarities between apprenticeship and discipleship, right? Some of you know, uh, well, let me, let me just, some of you are familiar with, with this idea, but he, Jesus in, in Matthew chapter four, he lays out this vision for us to enter into a very similar process to that. So in in, in verse 19, he gives this this vision, this really three-part vision or a three-part invitation that he he wants you to orient your life around three goals. And the first goal that he gives you in Matthew chapter 4 is to be with Jesus. 
That's the first goal of discipleship, the primary goal of discipleship. His initial invitation to Peter and Andrew and James and John is follow me. And in, in that day, it literally meant, obviously, like you can, you can put yourself in their shoes. It literally meant that Jesus was going to walk somewhere. He was going to go to a certain place, and those men were going to be walking behind him. They were going to be following him down the road that he was walking down. They watched him. They imitated him. They talked with him. They were with him constantly. Right? There's hardly ever a moment, if you read through the, the biographies of Jesus' life, the four Gospels that are the first four books of, of our New Testament, where you see him without his disciples. The only times really is when Jesus, it says, gets away by himself to pray, but even then the disciples are trying to get there to be with him, right? And one of the greatest compliments uh, that you could give to a disciple or somebody who is, who is apprenticing under a rabbi in the first century was to say, the dust of your rabbi is all over you, right? And, and what that means, like that's a literal thing. As the rabbi is, is walking down the, the dusty road, if his disciples are walking closely enough to him, the, the dust that he's kicking up is going to get on the people who are walking behind him. In Mark 3.14, when Jesus calls his first disciples, it says he called the twelve to himself, and here's the primary goal, that they might be with him. So their lives, these men, from this point forward, were first and foremost about one thing, and that one thing was being with Jesus. So, so don't miss the beauty for us of what Jesus is inviting us into. He's inviting us. He's inviting you to make your life first and foremost about cultivating friendship and intimacy and communion and love with him. So before you do anything for Jesus, here's what that means. Before you do anything for Jesus, which we'll, we'll get to here in just a second. Before you do anything for Jesus, you have to learn how to be with Jesus, Right? So the question is, how do we do that? It's a good question. How do we be with Jesus when he's not here with us in the flesh? And the answer that the New Testament gives is that we do that through the Holy Spirit. So just like Jesus' original disciples walked with Jesus, the New Testament calls us to walk by the Spirit. Just like Jesus' original disciples would be literally led by Jesus down the road, the New Testament tells us to be led by the Spirit. Just like his original disciples would keep in step with Jesus, they would keep up with Jesus, the New Testament tells us in Galatians chapter 5, to keep in step with the Spirit. Right? And the way that we do that is by organizing our lives. Remember, remember the, the statement that we read earlier, review your plans for living? Right? We organize our lives around attentiveness to the Spirit and awareness of His presence. This is, uh, this is what... a uh, uh, medieval monk named Brother Lawrence called practicing the presence of God, or maybe an easier way of thinking about it is Jesus in John chapter 15 just calls it abiding, just cultivating this constant communion with God. And all that sounds really mystical, and there is a little bit of mystery to it, to be honest with you, but actually it plays out in very concrete ways, right? And it's primarily through what are called the spiritual disciplines. So real quickly, some of you are familiar with this, but just to, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, these are things like silence and solitude. It's things like prayer and meditating on the scriptures and Sabbath and fasting and generosity, right? All these practices or all these disciplines that are not Jesus saying, do more stuff, right? 
That, that's not the goal. He's not just giving us more stuff to do. He's saying, out of this identity that I've given you as my disciple, I want you to organize your life around these practices that are going to open you up to my presence, make you aware of my presence, give you a space where you can listen to me and be with me, right? And then as we go throughout our day at work with the kids, whatever, whatever your, your day requires of you, and there's all kinds of stuff that our lives require of us. We just keep directing our attention to him and we keep giving him our attention until being with him actually becomes a way of life for us. That's why at the beginning of every single one of our worship gatherings, we take a moment and we just acknowledge the fact, God, you are here and so are we, right? There's nothing magical about that other than just, God, I've been in a million other places and I'm giving you my attention right now. I wanna be with you. I wanna hear you. I wanna listen to you. That's the primary invitation of discipleship. That's the primary thing Jesus is inviting us into is to be with him, right? And that leads to the second goal, which is to be transformed by Jesus. Be with Jesus, be transformed by Jesus. He says to these four men, if you choose to take me up on this offer of discipleship, if you, if you choose to take me up on my offer to follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Okay, so uh, important clarifier. I want us to make sure that we are clear on this before we go anywhere else. Some of your translations that you were reading with as as Emily was reading the text uh, a little bit ago may say something along the lines of, I will make you fish for people. There are several translations that say something along those lines. And when you read it that way, if you hear Jesus saying, I'm going to make you fish for people, what you may hear Jesus saying is, I'm going to force you to do something that you don't want to do, Right? If, if a parent says to us, I'm gonna, when, we're, when we were younger, if a parent says to us, I'm going to make you do something, that means you're going to force me to do something that ultimately I don't want to do. And for some of us, that's exactly how we feel about discipleship to Jesus, right? About following him. But what he's actually saying is a lot better news than that. What he's actually saying is, I'm going to change you so drastically. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transform you so powerfully that you actually want what I want. I'm not first and foremost, Jesus is saying, going to make you do something. I'm going to make you into a certain type of person. I'm going to make you into the type of person who can go on, on mission with me. This is what many people today call formation. So we have a, a definition of that uh, that I want us to bring up on the screen. Formation is the process of being transformed into the image of Jesus. So pretty, pretty simple. I want us to leave that up on the screen for, for just a minute and talk through, talk through that uh, each, each part, uh, taking each part a little bit at a time. Jesus is saying everyone who chooses to follow him is, uh, is going to undergo this process. This process of being transformed into his image. You cannot, it isn't possible to be a disciple of Jesus and not go through this process, right? So let's leave, let's, let's, let's think about this for just a minute. Talk about a few important things. First, we need to understand that formation, being changed in some way, just formation in general, isn't optional for us. Here's, here's what I mean by that. You are either being formed into the image of Jesus or you're being formed into some other image. You're either looking more and more like Jesus or you're looking more and more, in most cases, like the world, right? Here's another way of saying it. Whatever or whoever you're following is who you become like. 
That's why Paul says in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world. Like, like don't, don't let the world make you fit into its pattern and fit into its mold, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be, be, be transformed into the image of Jesus. So in other words, the church in Rome that Paul is talking to there it was already, you could say, deformed by the culture was already being formed into the image of the city of of Rome and into everything that it meant to be Roman, right? And they were in danger of even greater deformation if they weren't intentional about their discipleship. So notice, notice that this this is a process, right? That's an important word in that definition that's up on the screen because for some of us, we expect to be able to, to... Be like Jesus in an instant or by an experience, and Jesus is telling you that this is something that's actually going to take a lifetime. It's a slow, painful, lifelong process. But also notice, also notice that formation is the process of being transformed. So here's what I mean by that. The Greek word that in in Romans 12, 2 that I just mentioned a minute ago is the word metamorpho. Metamorpho. Anybody recognize an English word that we get from that word? What is it? Metamorphosis, right? Yeah, it's, it's this process that we know happens when, when uh, the, the uh, caterpillar undergoes this transformation and becomes a butterfly, right? This, this radical transformation from one thing into another, it's a total transformation. And that type of transformation, we're finding out, Jesus, Jesus says to us, is not something that we do to ourselves, it's not something we do to ourselves. It's, it's something that is done to us. That doesn't mean that we don't have a part to play in it. And we'll get to that here in just a second. But it does mean that our formation is not something that we're in control of. So, so here's, here's why that's important. All that we can do in this process of transformation is make ourselves available for Jesus to do his transforming work in us by showing up to be with him every day. Right? By, by having those touch points throughout the day where, where I, I come before Jesus and I say, Jesus, my mind's been in a million different places over the past hour or two hours or three hours, but now I'm here. I just want to make myself available to you. I want to surrender to you again. I want to listen to you. I want to hear you. I want to be led by you, right? And as you do that, he begins to make you into a person of love and joy and peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And that list sounds a whole lot different than the list that we read at the beginning of our time together, right? This is what we're supposed to be known by. Discipleship means that, that Jesus is making you look more and more like him. It's a simple idea, but it's something that we have to, to get if we're going to realign with his vision. He's making you into the type of person. And this may sound crazy to some of us. He's making you into the type of person who can do what he did. Which leads to the third goal. If we're going to reorient around this vision of discipleship that Jesus is giving us, the third goal is that we would join Jesus in his mission. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you or I will transform you into fishers of men. 
Now, what does it mean to be a fisher of men? Like, is Jesus, as he, is Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is here, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then walking around the Sea of Galilee, like, making bad puns about the, the profession that these guys have found themselves in. Like, you're, you're fishermen now, but, like, just wait a little bit. You're going to be fishers of men. Is that what Jesus is doing? I don't think that's what he's doing, right? I think what he's saying, this is a revolutionary idea, by the way, is he's saying, I'm going to take this thing that you're good at. I'm going to take this thing that you've given your life to. And as you follow me, those natural instincts and the the gifts that you have, those are going to get redeemed and they're going to get transformed and they're going to get used to actually help you join me in my mission. So so the the things that, that made these men into good fishermen, the things that made these men into, into to fishermen, Jesus is saying, I'm going to actually transform you in such a way that those same things allow you to join me in the mission that I'm doing. And you'll actually see this happening as you read through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. So look at verse 23 again. We'll get a little bit of a, a glimpse of this. It says that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, don't miss these things. Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now turn over in your Bibles just a few pages to Matthew chapter 10. You can read it up on the screen if you don't have your, your Bible with you. Jesus is now getting ready to send his disciples out into some of the surrounding villages. So he's about to, to give them their first real opportunity to participate with him, to join him in the mission that, that he's bringing, the kingdom that he's, he's bringing. He's getting ready to send them out. And it says in Matthew 10, verse, uh, verse 7, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is doing those things. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is saying, hey, you, as my disciples, I'm sending you out and you're going to go do the things that I did, right? You're going to go do the things that I've been doing. They're joining him in his mission of bringing his kingdom. They're, they, they're in this process of being transformed in such a way that they actually become the type of people who can do the things that Jesus did. And it actually didn't stop there in Matthew chapter 10. These men would go on to live extraordinary lives of transformation and mission and purpose, right? I think about Peter and John standing in front of the same people who put Jesus to death just, just like a few months before this moment in, in the book of Acts. They stand before the same men who put Jesus to death and they say, we can't help but talk about the things that we've seen and heard. These are the same men who abandoned Jesus in his hour of greatest need, but they stand before him having been transformed in such a way and saying, I can't help but talk about it. I can't help but say something about it. I can't help but tell people about who Jesus is. And you know what they notice, the religious leaders that they're standing in front of in that moment? You know what they notice about them? Acts chapter 4 says that they notice in that moment a few different things. They notice how uneducated they are. So these dudes don't have an education, right? They notice it says that they were untrained. And it says they noticed that they had been with Jesus. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus join Jesus in his mission. So I think about our mission as a church. Some of you have heard us say it, talk about it. You may have noticed it on the the, uh, bar whenever you came in and got your coffee. We're a family on mission joining Jesus and seeing his kingdom come in Austin and on earth as it is in heaven, right? So the only way that happens, 
Like the only way that it starts off in a room of however many people are here tonight and how many other, how many ever other people are connected to our church in some way. The only way that we actually get to see that mission come to fruition is if disciples of Jesus live out their identity as disciples of Jesus, right? And join him in seeing his kingdom come in their homes and in their workplaces and with their kids and in their rec leagues and with their roommates. It's not through preaching a sermon on a Sunday. So make no mistake about it. The life that Jesus is calling you into is beautiful. And it's what all of us, I think if we were honest, it's what all of us deep down are longing for, for this life of like real character and real transformation and real flourishing. But it will also cost you. And some of you maybe have been in a moment of experiencing that already. Maybe some of you, like I, I know some people here, some people here moved to Austin, right? Some people have felt the cost. Some people have given up stuff to be here. And regardless of if that's the case for you with our church, if you're a disciple of Jesus, at some point you felt the cost of following Jesus. Every one of us can attest to that. He might not call you like he did with these four men to leave your family or to leave your job or or whatever like he did with these four, but he does call you to come to him with open hands and to say, Jesus, everything that I have is yours. My life is yours. My family is yours. My money is yours. My resources are yours. And you can do with it whatever you want to do. I'm following you wherever you lead. And that's not some like higher tier of discipleship. That's just called discipleship, right? And it's actually the only thing that makes sense if you keep reading through the rest of the story. Because the road of discipleship that Jesus is inviting these four men to follow him down is a road that as we continue to journey through this gospel, you're going to find out it's a road that leads to a cross. That's the the place where the king of the kingdom is showing us once and for all, this is what my kingdom is like, right? Regardless of what the list says about what the world thinks about the kingdom, this is what my kingdom is like. This is what it looks like for me to take back the world. The cross is the place where the the darkness and the hell that we unleashed on the world was overcome through the suffering love of Jesus. And Jesus willingly goes into that place and then he says, follow me to that place and trust as you follow me to that place that there's new joy and new freedom and new life on the other side of whatever sacrifice I asked you to make. So this is what we need to understand. This story is absolutely showing us the cost of discipleship, but we also need to ask the question, what would it have cost them if they had said no to Jesus's invitation, right? They might have kept their stuff. They they might have had a nice boat. They might have had their nets, but they would have been forfeiting joy and freedom and power, and faith, and the abundant life that Jesus gives to everyone who says yes to him. So this is the invitation of discipleship. And the beauty of it is that it's actually an open invitation for every single person here. And it's an open invitation for every single person that you work with, every single person in your family. Jesus is inviting us into this. We know the names of of these four men in verses 18 to to 22. But did you notice in verse 24, who else is following Jesus? The afflicted, the suffering, the 
the sick. You could read through that list and see all of these other, all of these other uh, things that are characterizing these people, which should tell you that the only thing that qualifies you to follow Jesus is recognizing that you're not qualified to follow Jesus, right? The only thing that you need, the only thing that we can bring to the equation is to recognize that we're in need and to say, Jesus, you're the one who can give me what I'm looking for. So some of you might be thinking, like, I'm on board with you, but uh, I'm not a fisherman in first century Israel, right? So what does this actually look like for me? If we could, if we could bring up those, those three goals again, Gabe. Um, it's, it's really, really simple. It means for us, organizing our lives and organizing our schedules and orienting our days around these three goals. And so, so this, is, this is where it gets really practical. Just ask the question, like if I were to pull out my Google calendar or my, my uh, calendar on my phone, whatever you use, the, the way that you spend your time, does it reflect that these are your priorities? You can't go where Jesus wants you to go until you're honest first and foremost, about where you're at, right? So does, does my life, does your life reflect those three priorities? And once you're honest about where you're at, you can determine what the next step is that you need to take in order to bring your life back into alignment with Jesus' vision. And this is such an important principle for us to grasp if we're going to become who Jesus wants us to be. It's the principle of training, Training. This, this makes sense for any other change that you want to see happen in your life, right? Most of us, when we think about discipleship, we think about some form of trying harder. Some, some form of trying harder, but Jesus isn't calling you just to try harder. He's calling you to train, right? It says in Luke 6, 40, uh, every, every student, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So Jesus is inviting us to train under him. A few weeks ago, we went and watched... Uh, Aaron Chamnus. So this sermon, for some reason, is brought to you by uh, the Chamnuses, I guess. They're, they're the point of all of my illustrations. He, uh, we, we went and watched Aaron run in a half marathon, right? Uh, the Austin half marathon. But just like imagine that as we were there uh, watching the half marathon, I had this revelation and I told Callie, like, Callie, I think, to be honest with you, that, that this is my destiny. <laughs> I'm watching these people run and I'm pretty sure that my destiny is to be the best runner that anybody has ever seen. I'm going to run a marathon, and I'm not just going to run a marathon. I'm going to run a marathon tomorrow morning, right? What would happen to me the next day whenever I tried to run a marathon? I would die, right? <laughs> I, would, I would be laid out on the side of the road, right? Now, here's the thing. Does that mean that I can't run a marathon? Not necessarily, Right? I haven't tried, so I don't know for sure, but not necessarily. It, it just means that I can't run a marathon yet, right? Because there's some training that needs to be done in order for me to get there. I have to adjust my schedule and my priorities to enable me to become the type of person who can run so that eventually I can do something that right now I can't do. And it's the same with discipleship. Some of you feel this pressure like, I know you guys are doing missional communities and calling people to live on mission. I just don't think I can ever be the type of person who does that. Or uh, I know that I should be a part of joining Jesus in his mission at my workplace. 
And I don't think I'll ever be the type of person who could do that. And there would obviously be some, some pastoral conversations that would need to happen there. And we, we can talk with each other about that. But for a lot of those things that we could say, the response would be, not yet. But you will be. And you can be. Jesus didn't say to these four men, hey, you're fishers of men now. Right? He said, follow me and I'll make you into the type of person that can be a fisher of men. And that process was full of ups and downs and practice and mistakes and highs and lows until eventually these men took the gospel to the ends of the earth. That whole journey started in this moment that we're reading about today because Peter and Andrew and James and John were just willing to say yes to Jesus' invitation and leave behind everything else for all of them. It says that their immediate response was to leave behind everything, their possessions, their father, their business, and to follow Jesus. And their responses to Jesus' invitation are meant to make you ask the question, what's my response going to be? What's my response going to be? I love what Dallas Willard says one more time. The greatest issue facing the world today, with all of its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. And I know that's dense, and I know it's late in the day, but here's what he's saying. The, the goal for us is not simply to say that we believe certain things. The goal is not just for us to say that we, we know certain things. The goal for us is eventually to, to get to the point of saying, I want to put what Jesus says into practice to the point that in every corner that I touch, in every corner of my workplace, in every corner of my family, in every corner of my home, in every part of this city, Jesus' disciples joining him in what he's doing. That's what Jesus is after. So let me come back to that question that we asked at the beginning. What does it mean to be a Christian? Like when you read Jesus' vision here in Matthew chapter 4, you realize that the call is actually not so much to be a Christian may sound weird to you for a pastor to say. The goal is not so much to be a Christian as it is to be a disciple. And that's why we need this realignment that Jesus is giving us. So hear me say this. The world does not need more people who are generically Christian. The world needs more devoted disciples of Jesus. People who actually look like Jesus. People who embody those traits that we read earlier, right? Love and joy and peace. People who give up everything and reorganize their lives around Jesus' vision of discipleship because that's what it means to repent and live in the kingdom of God. So for us today, what's the step that Jesus is going to call you to take? We're going to talk about it here in just a minute. What's the step that he's going to invite you to take to reorient your life around those three goals? I want to give us a chance to, to think about that and to come before God with that. So if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to give us just a brief moment of, of reflection and prayer. I want to ask you, we're going to talk about this with the people around us here in just a second. What is, what's the invitation for you today? What is Jesus inviting you into, like specifically, based on what we talked about? What, what is Jesus inviting you to do? What's he inviting you into? What's the step that he's inviting you to take to have those three goals become the thing that your life is oriented around? 
And are we willing to say yes to it? Father, I just want to ask that before, as we get ready to come to the table, um, I pray that you would speak to each and every person, that you have spoken to each and every person here tonight, that you've, you've given us some invitation, that we've seen your vision and we want to be realigned with it, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and we want to see this city flooded with disciples of Jesus who look like him. People whose goal in life, whose goals in life are to be with him and to become like him and to to join him in his mission. And so I pray that you would speak and that you would transform us and that you would help us to figure out what's the next step that you want me to take in this life of training, apprenticing under Jesus, discipling under Jesus. And I pray that you would speak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.